Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 182 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at the reasons people think an EV won't work for them. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. This particular episode is also in partnership with EVA England, a body representing electric vehicle owners in England. See the show notes for membership details and links to their website. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that next week we're speaking with BP Pulse. I've been wanting to get them on the show for quite a while, and all the ducks lined up recently. We'll be talking about their pricing structure, their charger rollout strategy, and yes, I'll be asking them the important question about why their hardware is so bad. Stay tuned for that one. Our main topic of discussion today is EV hesitancy. I was in a conversation with someone recently. He's a local taxi driver in the town I live near. He told me he was looking to get an EV but he knew the battery would die on him, so he bought a second-hand diesel Mercedes instead, spending almost £30,000 into the bargain. Of course, I was intrigued about what he was told or what research he'd done or who he'd spoken to that gave him the impression an EV wouldn't work for him, especially considering the same town has at least three other electric taxis operating in it. The discussion I had opened up a, a whole new facet of EV life that had previously only been of marginal interest to me. How do people who don't know about EVs get their information? And it's a fascinating topic and one which is going to be very important as we move forward with EV adoption in this country. I was at a presentation given by the fully charged CEO, Dan Caesar, who hopefully we'll be talking to later in the season. He was talking about the adoption curve for EVs and it's shaped just like a standard bell curve. At the bottom left, you have the innovators, the ones who know this is a brand new technology are willing to work through the issues and problems and don't mind the fact that these issues exist. Amongst this group are people such as Robert Llewellyn and Quentin Wilson, who picked up their Mitsubishi IMEFs at the same time when there was only one rapid charger in the country and the IMEF could do about 80 miles on a charge. Moving further right on the curve, and as the curve starts to rise up, there are the early adopters. These are the people who recognise that this is something new, but also recognise that early problems are being ironed out. That's that this can work as a thing. No, it's not 100% yet. There are still issues, but they're okay with that. And I count myself in this group, or at least I did when I got my first EV. The next group, and this is where the curve starts to increase exponentially, are the early mainstream adopters. These are quote-unquote regular people with minimal knowledge of the underlying tech who recognize the benefits of EVs and know they can work. Dan said that he believes we're on the cusp between early adopters and early mainstream, and I I agree. But here's where the problem starts. Innovators know everything about this new tech. They help design it, they research it thoroughly, they know every issue, problem, and work around needed to make it work. Early adopters are well-informed, have researched the pros and cons, and made a conscious decision to move forward with the tech. But when you're moving to early mainstream adoption, the numbers are bigger, much bigger. And information's key to this, and this is the point where misinformation or lack of information can have the biggest impact. If someone sees something that makes them think there's a long way to go with EVs, for example, 
They may decide that they don't want one and they'll stick with their existing car as long as possible. And they form the part of the adoption curve at the right of the graph where the line starts to flatten out again. And we call them laggards. So what separates an early mainstreamer from a late mainstreamer or a laggard? Well, information is the answer. More importantly, where they get their information. And we've all read the articles from journalists who've managed to get themselves into a situation where they couldn't work in an electric car to their satisfaction. They've run out of charge or had issues with some of the units they've tried to charge at. And as we've discussed before on this program, many of the issues are self-inflicted. Don't try and do long distances without knowing which charger you're going to use. Don't pick the usual uh, suspects for charging, the unreliable ones, etc. But a lot of this negative press gets amplified in the social media echo chamber. It doesn't help when government ministers such as John Redwood are telling blatant lies about EV demand reducing when demand is at an all-time high. But things like this stick in the minds of people who don't know the reality, and it colours their thinking. I was at a public meeting recently and some elderly gentleman was bemoaning the fact that after 2030, we won't be able to go anywhere in our cars. And when I asked him why, he said, because we'll all have to drive electric and they don't have a long range. So, of course, I asked him the same questions I always ask. What's your daily commute? What's your longest journey you do without a break? What's your... Let me stop you there, he said. I do London to the Mediterranean every year for my holiday, and I can do that in my diesel SUV on one tank, and I won't be able to do that in an electric car. Well, I asked him then, did he do that trip in one go? And he said, no, he takes a day or two. I asked him if he drives without stopping for food or, or a comfort break. And he said, no, he takes breaks every 200 miles or so. So with a little prodding, it transpires that he basically chunks his trip down into three and a half or four hour slots with a nice break and an overnight stop or two. More than enough time to recharge en route. But of course, he was too focused on the fossil fuel model of drive, 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 stop for a little while to fill up, drive, drive, drive. So let's go back to my taxi driving friend. I gave him a link to this podcast so he could educate himself. If you're listening, Renato, hi. There are a number of pieces of data he was working on, which were either inaccurate or incomplete. His main concern was that as a taxi driver, he would be doing some high mileage and he wasn't sure the battery would last that long. And I told him that all EV manufacturers offer a warranty on the battery. As a general rule, that warranty is eight years or 100,000 miles. Must be said, however, in fairness, that some manufacturers, such as Hyundai, Hyundai, limit that to five years or 100,000 miles if the vehicle is used in the taxi trade or similar. So he's concerned about the battery dying were not supported by the evidence. I reassured him that there are cars on the road with one million miles that are still on their original battery. His next question was whether the battery suffers a loss of performance like his phone battery does. Again, this is an issue caused by lack of information around battery performance. For phone batteries, laptop batteries, and any device which doesn't have a battery management system, there will be degradation of performance. In phones, for example, it can be quite severe. But for EVs, the battery management system will manage this and ensure that the performance is maintained at as high a level as can be. I told him that there are cars that have done hundreds of thousands of miles and have lost only around 10% of their original state of health. Then we went on to charging and charge speed, and he still thinks that he'll have to spend a large proportion of his time sitting at a charger during the day waiting to charge when he might be missing work. 
if I get a drop off at Heathrow and I need to come back to the local area to go back to Heathrow, I might, might not be able to do that if I need to charge. I'd have to turn that job down, so I'm losing money. And again, his perception of charge times, etc., were focused around the fossil fuel model. I need to stop what I'm doing and make a special trip to refill before I can continue work. Whereas with an EV, I told him the model is different. You can sit on a charger while you're waiting for a job, or you can sit on a charger while you're at lunch. It's something you do while you're doing other things rather than something you do specifically. Finally, he looked at me and he said, Gary, should I sell the Merc and get an EV? And I told him the answer to that question depends on what he thinks about what I'm about to tell him next. I took my phone out and booted up an uh, an app I have that monitors my particular car, the ID3. And I pulled up the information for the previous month. I asked him how much he'd spent on diesel for the previous month. And he said about £700. I asked him how many miles he'd travelled on that £700. And he said about 3000 So we worked out that his cost per mile was around 23 pence. I then showed him my figures. I'd done 474 miles for £8.92, around 2.2 pence a mile. So my charging costs were around a tenth of his diesel costs. And his eyes went, understandably, a little bit round. Now, of course, we're not comparing like for like, so the figures are not 100% valid. I've got cheap overnight charging and solar panels, so I'm paying a lot less than he would have if he was publicly charging. Plus, he doesn't have off-street parking, so he can't charge overnight unless he drops a cable out of his first floor flat and runs it across the car park to his car. But finally, he said, I went to the Mercedes dealer and he told me not to bother with an EV, just go for the diesel car. And it's pretty hard to argue in favour of an EV when the people who sell these things aren't pushing them. But as we've said earlier, the demand is out there and they can't make them quick enough to sell. So I reminded Renato that he was taking advice from someone who benefits from selling diesel cars due to the servicing income that's almost absent from EVs. Plus, the commission is probably higher on an internal combustion engine car than an EV due to higher EV manufacturing costs. Plus, the salesman is always going to want to sell the car that's on the forecourt ready to take away now instead of the car that needs to be ordered and could take a few months to arrive and for the paperwork to go through, right? A recent survey from Peugeot showed that the yawning chasm that needs to be filled with, uh, when it comes to EV knowledge, just 23% rate their understanding of electric vehicles as good or excellent, while 38% believe that their knowledge is poor or very poor. Less than half are aware that battery electric vehicles emit zero tailpipe emissions. A surprising 12% also believe that plug-in hybrid cars and electric cars are exactly the same type of vehicle. Less than a third of respondents know that electric models can be charged from 0 to 80% in just 30 minutes from a 100 kilowatt rapid charger. And there's also misunderstanding around the electric vehicle charging network with 70% of respondents saying they find the way different providers operate to be confusing. The same percentage also finds the language surrounding electric vehicle power, battery capacity and efficiency difficult to understand, with only 31% aware that kilowatt hours is the unit used to measure battery capacity in EVs. Well, there are variations in these data between old and young, north and south. The overall takeaway is that education and understanding is a key to moving forward with EV adoption. After all, who's going to buy an electric car if they think a hybrid is the same thing and runs on petrol that they know and understand? Who's going to go electric if they don't understand that rapid charging is quick and easy and doesn't take four or five hours like fast charging does? 
There is a school of thought out there which says that lack of education of drivers is not a driver issue. It's an industry issue. This was specifically related to the various charging speeds and methods that are available. After all, you didn't need to learn how to use a petrol pump when you first started driving. Yeah, you see, I don't actually subscribe to that point of view. I worked in petrol stations for many years as a youngster, and I can tell you that the ability of someone off the street to come in and immediately know how to operate every pump on every forecourt was not intuitive. Couple that with operators who require prepayment before any petrol could be pumped and users who regularly put the wrong fuel in the tanks. And it's obvious that education is a key issue even for petrol uh, pumps. I've even had people pull up to the pumps, sit in their car waiting for someone to come out and fill their tank for them because they didn't realise that this wasn't attended service. If you go to the US, they have four courts where certain pumps are attended service, certain ones are self-service. If you're new to that forecourt, it isn't always obvious how that works. Having said that, I do agree that we need to make things as simple as possible for as many people as possible. I don't know anyone who decided they weren't going to learn to drive because it's too complicated to fill it with petrol, despite the fact all the pumps are different and cross-fueling is a real danger. So, looping back to the topic at hand, it could be summarised in two sentences. One, people are scared of change. Two. When people are scared of change, they'll grasp anything, real or fake, that confirms the status quo and means they can justify not changing. That last point is key because what we're really saying here is that many people will take the advice of people they don't know, either on social media or other internet sources, and accept it without question if it confirms their existing biases. So people like Renato, who have years and years of experience driving fossil fuel cars, a level of comfort in using and driving them, and little to no actual knowledge or experience of electric cars and infrastructure, is going to gain more solace from listening to people who tell him EVs don't work, the battery dies in three years, and you'll end up running out of charge on the side of the motorway in the middle of the night because the infrastructure's not there, than he is from someone like me telling him, I've had one of these things for five years now. I save a fortune, I've never run out of charge, never had to swap a battery, and you wouldn't believe how much more charging infrastructure there is now than when I started five years back. Of course, this isn't to say that EVs are the right solution for Renato. As I already mentioned, he lives in a housing block with off-street parking but no charge points. He'd have to drop a cable out of the window and down two floors to get a charge for his car overnight. But he's also living in a town with a higher than normal proportion of fast chargers with BP Pulse, Osprey Charging, GD Point and Instavolt all within a few minutes drive of each other and where a brand new 10-unit Ionity hub will be built this year. He's also looking to do runs to Heathrow and Gatwick, both of which have some good charging uh, opportunities nearby. Gatwick will be the site of the new GridServe Electric Forecourt by the end of the year, alongside the nine units of the BP Pulse hub at the west end of the runway. Peace Pottage, just south of Gatwick, has nine GridServe high-power chargers too, and there's both GridServe and Ionity at Cobham on the way back. Heathrow has the public Tesla supercharger, 16 units, the Taxi Feeder Park, 7 units, the BP Cranford Forecourt, 2 units, and Instavolt at the McDonald's across the road, 2 units. The Starbucks Heathrow North Hub also has 6 units, all of which can be used while waiting for a passenger to arrive. Now, cost might be an issue. He's probably going to have to buy second-hand. But he's also looking at buying a Mercedes at the moment, as I say, £30,000. So the price differential between a good second-hand EV and a good second-hand Mercedes will not be as great. And as I mentioned already, he'll save on charging and servicing. So overall, he'd be better off. So Renato, 
if you are listening, EVs might not be 100% perfect for you, and that's fine. But if you're hesitant, make sure you look at this from the point of view of what's the minimum I need to make this work and find out whether you can do it. Don't rely on people who've never driven an EV, including those who have a brother or a cousin or a work colleague who tried it and ended up giving it back. Speak to people who do what you do now with EVs and see how they're coping. Borrow one yourself. Check out the charging. See whether it'll work. If not, just wait. It'll all come together eventually. When it does, and you get your first EV, make sure you head over and join EVA England, who are lobbying on your behalf to make sure charge point operators are providing the infrastructure we need, that the costs are being reduced wherever possible, and that the general public are informed about what the true situation of EV life is like in England. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. We've all heard of uh, regen in electric cars. Take your foot off the pedal and when you're driving at speed and the braking effect of the electric motor actually feeds power back into the battery to extend range. But did you know there are boats that take advantage of this too? New sailboats, which you would think are wind-powered, actually need small motors to manoeuvre themselves around marinas and in case of lack of wind. The latest versions of these motors are actually uh, electric-powered and because they can stay in the water when the boat is actually under sail, they use the flow of water past the propeller to provide an amount of regeneration that goes right back into the battery. The main manufacturer of these is a company called OceanVault, and they're seen as a leader in the field of hydro-regenerating motors, having racked up awards for their motors going back years. The company's sail drives use propellers with variable pitch blades, which combined, when combined with the motor's ability to rotate 360 degrees, creates the most efficient environment for both propulsion and hydro-regeneration. Also, because they're electric, they provide more power than large diesel motors. A servo-prop 25 motor provides as much power as a diesel 75-horsepower motor on the boat. I love it when tech makes things easy. A word now from our sponsors, ZapMap, about their ZapPay product with news about a great promotional offer. ZapPay is the simple way to pay for charging across networks from within the ZapMap app. As a single app payment system that uses a credit or debit card to pay for charging, ZapPay avoids the hassle of using multiple apps across different networks. It means that EV drivers can search, plan, and pay for charging all within one app. Use ZapPay and you'll also be able to view your charging history, receive live status updates while away from your vehicle, and download VAT receipts. With the recent addition of EVV to the fold, ZapPay is live across 10 great networks, including Osprey Charging, ESB Energy, Chargey, GeniePoint, Mer, MFG EV Power, FastNed, Alpha Power, and Connected Curb. ZapPay are live with an exclusive promotional offer to celebrate the launch of the GeniFlex tariff on ZapPay. The promotion runs between now and the 15th of September, and the offer will give ZapPay users a hefty 10 pence reduction on the GeniePoint public network GeniFlex rate, with discounted rates at 69 pence per kilowatt hour on peak and 65 pence per kilowatt hour off peak. So if you haven't already, now's a great time to try out ZapPay. Simply register a bank card in the ZapMap app and you're all set for simple payment. Why not give ZapPay a try and let ZapMap know what you think? And just to remind you, that's reduced rates between now and the 15th of September on the GeniePoint public network GeniFlex rates. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. 
If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So, you've gone electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've gone renewable. It is also available on Amazon for the same 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, hesitancy? No. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know he likes to play golf in his spare time, but he's still a learner. Tends to take a lot of divots, even off the tee, so he always carries around a carton of grass seeds so they can drop into the divots and let the grass regrow. Become a little bit of a mantra for him. Drive, 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 drive. Stop for a little while to fill up. Drive, drive, drive. Thanks for listening. Bye.